Space Shuttle Challenger Disaster The Space Shuttle Challenger Disaster was a fatal accident in the United States space program that occurred on January 28, 1986, when the Space Shuttle Challenger, OV-099, broke apart 73 seconds into its flight, killing all seven crew members aboard. The mission carried the designation STS-51 leader and was the 10th flight for the Challenger orbiter and 25th flight of the Space Shuttle fleet. The crew was scheduled to deploy a communications satellite and study Halley's Comet while they were in orbit. The spacecraft disintegrated over the Atlantic Ocean, off the coast of Cape Canaveral, Florida, at 11.39 a.m. EST, 16.39 UTC. The disaster was caused by the failure of the two redundant O-ring seals in a joint in the Space Shuttle's right solid rocket booster, SRB. The record low temperatures of the launch reduced the elasticity of the rubber O-rings, reducing their ability to seal the joints. The broken seals caused a breach in the joint shortly after liftoff, which allowed pressurized gas from within the SRB to burn through the wall to the adjacent external fuel tank. This led to the separation of the right-hand SRB's aft attachment and the structural failure of the external tank. Following the explosion, the orbiter, which included the crew compartment, was broken up by aerodynamic forces. The crew compartment and many other vehicle fragments were recovered from the ocean floor after a three-month search and recovery operation. The exact timing of the deaths of the crew is unknown. Several crew members are known to have survived the initial breakup of the spacecraft. By design, the orbiter had no escape system, and the impact of the crew compartment at terminal velocity with the ocean surface was too violent to be survivable. The disaster resulted in a 32-month hiatus in the space shuttle program. President Ronald Reagan created the Rogers Commission to investigate the accident. The commission criticized NASA's organizational culture and decision-making processes that had contributed to the accident. Test data from as early as 1977 had revealed a potentially catastrophic flaw in the SRB's O-rings. Neither NASA, nor Morton Thiokol, the SRB manufacturer, addressed or corrected the issue. NASA managers also disregarded warnings from engineers about the dangers of launching in cold temperatures and did not report these technical concerns to their superiors. As a result of the disaster, NASA established the Office of Safety, Reliability and Quality Assurance to better address safety concerns, and commercial satellites would be launched on expendable launch vehicles rather than deployed from the crewed orbiter. To replace Challenger, construction of Endeavour was approved in 1987, and the new orbiter first flew in 1992. Later space shuttle missions launched with redesigned SRBs, and crews wore pressure suits during ascent and re-entry. Background Space Shuttle the Space Shuttle was a partially reusable spacecraft operated by the U.S. National Aeronautics and Space Administration NASA. It flew for the first time in April 1981, and was used to conduct in-orbit research, and deploy commercial, military, and scientific payloads. At launch, it consisted of the orbiter, which contained the crew and payload, the external tank ET, and the two solid rocket boosters SRBs. The orbiter was a reusable, winged vehicle that launched vertically and landed as a glider. Five orbiters were built during the Space Shuttle program. Challenger was the second orbiter constructed after its conversion from a structural test article. The orbiter contained the crew compartment, where the crew predominantly lived and worked throughout a mission. Three Space Shuttle main engines SSMEs, were mounted at the aft end of the orbiter and provided thrust during launch. Once in space, the crew maneuvered using the two smaller, aft-mounted orbital maneuvering system OMS, engines. When it launched, the orbiter was connected to the external tank, which held the fuel for the SSMEs. The external tank consisted of a larger tank for liquid hydrogen, LH2, and a smaller tank for liquid oxygen, LOX, both of which were required for the SSMEs to operate. 
After its fuel had been expended, the external tank separated from the orbiter and re-entered the atmosphere, where it would break apart during re-entry and its pieces would land in the Indian or Pacific Ocean. Two solid rocket boosters, SRBs, built by Morton Thiokol, provided the majority of thrust at liftoff. They were connected to the external tank, and burned for the first two minutes of flight. The SRBs separated from the orbiter once they had expended their fuel and fell into the Atlantic Ocean under a parachute. NASA retrieval teams recovered the SRBs and returned them to the Kennedy Space Center, where they were disassembled and their components were reused on future flights. Each SRB was constructed in four main sections at the factory in Utah and transported to Kennedy Space Center, KSC, then assembled in the Vehicle Assembly Building at Kayasse with three Tang and Clevis field joints, each joint consisting of a Tang from the upper segment fitting into the Clevis of the lower segment. Each field joint was sealed with two rubber O-rings around the circumference of the SRB and had a cross-section diameter of 0.280 inches, 7.1 millimeters. The O-rings were required to contain the hot, high-pressure gases produced by the burning solid propellant and allowed for the SRBs to be rated for crewed missions. The two O-rings were configured to create a double-bore seal, and the gap between segments was filled with putty. When the motor was running, this configuration was designed to compress air in the gap against the upper O-ring, pressing it against the sealing surfaces of its seat. On the SRB critical items list, the O-rings were listed as Criticality 1R, which indicated that an O-ring failure could result in the destruction of the vehicle and loss of life, but it was considered a redundant system due to the secondary O-ring. O-ring Concerns Evaluations of the proposed SRB design in the early 1970s and field joint testing showed that the wide tolerances between the mated parts allowed the O-rings to be extruded from their seats rather than compressed. This extrusion was judged to be acceptable by NASA and Morton Thiokol despite concerns of NASA engineers. A 1977 test showed that up to 0.052 inches millimeters, of joint rotation occurred during the simulated internal pressure of a launch. Joint rotation, which occurred when the Tang and Clevis bent away from each other, reduced the pressure on the O-rings which weakened their seals and made it possible for combustion gases to erode the O-rings. NASA engineers suggested that the field joints should be redesigned to include shims around the O-rings, but they received no response. In 1980, the NASA Verification-Certification Committee requested further tests on joint integrity to include testing in the temperature range of 40 to 90 degrees Fahrenheit, 4 to 32 degrees Celsius, and with only a single O-ring installed. The NASA program managers decided that their current level of testing was sufficient and further testing was not required. In December 1982, the critical items list was updated to indicate that the secondary O-ring could not provide a backup to the primary O-ring, as it would not necessarily form a seal in the event of joint rotation. The O-rings were redesignated as Criticality 1, removing the R to indicate it was no longer considered a redundant system. The first occurrence of in-flight O-ring erosion occurred on the right SRB on STS-2 in November 1981. In August 1984, a post-flight inspection of the left SRB on STS-41D revealed that soot had blown past the primary O-ring and was found in between the O-rings. While there was no damage to the secondary O-ring, this indicated that the primary O-ring was not creating a reliable seal and was allowing hot gas to pass. The amount of O-ring erosion was not sufficient to prevent the O-ring from sealing, and investigators concluded that the soot between the O-rings resulted from non-uniform pressure at the time of ignition. The January 1985 launch of STS-51C was the coldest space shuttle launch to date. The air temperature was 62 degrees Fahrenheit, 17 degrees Celsius, 
At the time of launch, and the calculated oaring temperature was 53 degrees Fahrenheit, 12 degrees Celsius. Post-flight analysis revealed erosion in primary O-rings in both SRBs. Morton Thiokol engineers determined that the cold temperatures caused a loss of flexibility in the O-rings that decreased their ability to seal the field joints, which allowed hot gas and soot to flow past the primary O-ring. O-ring erosion occurred on all but one, STS-51J, of the space shuttle flights in 1985, and erosion of both the primary and secondary O-rings occurred on STS-51B. To correct the issues with O-ring erosion, engineers at Morton Thiokol, led by Alan McDonald and Roger Boyshilly, proposed a redesigned field joint that introduced a metal lip to limit movement in the joint. They also recommended adding a spacer to provide additional thermal protection and using an O-ring with a larger cross-section. In July 1985, Morton Thiokol ordered redesigned SRB casings, with the intention of using already manufactured casings for the upcoming launches until the redesigned cases were available the following year. Space Shuttle Mission The Space Shuttle Mission, named STS-51 Leader, was the 25th flight of the Space Shuttle and the 10th flight of Challenger. The crew was announced on January 27, 1985, and was commanded by Francis Scoppy. Michael Smith was assigned as the pilot, and the mission specialists were Ellison Onizuka, Judith Resnick, and Ronald McNair. The two payload specialists were Gregory Jarvis, who was assigned to conduct research for the Hughes Aircraft Company, and Krista McAuliffe, who flew as part of the Teacher in Space project. The primary mission of the Challenger crew was to use an inertial upper stage, IUS, to deploy a tracking and data relay satellite, TERS, named TDRSB, that would have been part of a constellation to enable constant communication with orbiting spacecraft. The crew also planned to study Halley's Comet as it passed near the Sun, and deploy and retrieve the Spartan satellite. The mission was originally scheduled for July 1985, but was delayed to November and then to January 1986. The mission was scheduled to launch on January 22, but was delayed until January 28. Decision to launch The air temperature on January 28 was predicted to be a record low for a space shuttle launch. The air temperature was forecast to drop to 18 degrees Fahrenheit, minus 8 degrees Celsius, overnight before rising to 22 degrees Fahrenheit, minus 6 degrees Celsius, at 6 a.m. and 26 degrees Fahrenheit, minus 3 degrees Celsius, at the scheduled launch time of 9.38 a.m. based upon oaring erosion that had occurred in warmer launches, Morton Thiokol engineers were concerned over the effect the record cold temperatures would have on the seal provided by the SRBO rings for the launch. Cecil Houston, the manager of the CASA office of the Marshall Space Flight Center, set up a conference call on the evening of January 27 to discuss the safety of the launch. Morton Thiokol engineers expressed their concerns about the effect of low temperatures on the resilience of the rubber O-rings. As the colder temperatures lowered the elasticity of the rubber O-rings, the engineers feared that the O-rings would not be extruded to form a seal at the time of launch. The engineers argued that they did not have enough data to determine whether the O-rings would seal at temperatures colder than 53 degrees Fahrenheit, 12 degrees Celsius, the coldest launch of the space shuttle to date. Morton Thiokol employees Robert Lund, the Vice President of Engineering, and Joe Kilminster, the Vice President of the Space Booster Programs, recommended against launching until the temperature was above 53 degrees Fahrenheit, 12 degrees Celsius, the teleconference held a recess to allow for offline discussion for Morton Thiokol management. When it resumed, Morton Thiokol leadership had changed their opinion and stated that the evidence presented on the failure of the O-rings was inconclusive and that there was a substantial margin of error in the event of a failure or erosion, 
They stated that their decision was to proceed with the launch. Morton Thiokol leadership submitted a recommendation for launch, and the teleconference ended. Lawrence Malloy, a NASA SRB project manager, called Arnold Aldrich, the NASA mission management team leader, to discuss the launch decision and weather concerns, but did not mention the Oring discussion. The two agreed to proceed with the launch. An overnight measurement taken by the KSAI's team recorded the left SRB was 25 degrees Fahrenheit, minus 4 degrees Celsius, and the right SRB was 8 degrees Fahrenheit, minus 13 degrees Celsius. These measurements were recorded for engineering data and not reported, as the temperature of the SRBs was not part of the launch commit criteria. In addition to its effect on the O-rings, the cold temperatures caused ice to form on the fixed service structure. To keep pipes from freezing, water was slowly run from the system, it could not be entirely drained because of the upcoming space shuttle launch. As a result, ice formed from 240 feet, 73 meters, down in the freezing temperatures. Engineers at Rockwell International, which manufactured the orbiter, were concerned that ice would be violently thrown during launch and could potentially damage the orbiter's thermal protection system or be aspirated into one of the engines. Rocco Patron, the head of Rockwell Space Transportation Division, and his team determined that the potential damage from ice made the mission unsafe to fly. Arnold Aldrich consulted with engineers at KSSA and the Johnson Space Center, JSC, who advised him that ICE did not threaten the safety of the orbiter, and he decided to proceed with the launch. The launch was delayed for an additional hour to allow more ice to melt. The ICE team performed an inspection at T20 minutes which indicated that the ice was melting, and Challenger was cleared to launch at 11.38 am. EST, with an air temperature of 36 degrees Fahrenheit, 2 degrees Celsius, Launch and failure. Liftoff and initial ascent. At T plus zero, Challenger launched from the Kennedy Space Center Launch Complex 39B, LC 39B, at 11.38 a.m. beginning at T plus 0.678 until T plus 3.375 seconds. Nine puffs of dark gray smoke were recorded escaping from the right-hand SRB near the aft strut that attached the booster to the external tank, ET. It was later determined that these smoke puffs were caused by joint rotation in the aft field joint of the right-hand SRB at ignition. The cold temperature in the joint had prevented the O-rings from creating a seal. Rainfall from the preceding time on the launch pad had likely accumulated within the field joint, further compromising the sealing capability of the O-rings. As a result, hot gas was able to travel past the O-rings and erode them. Molten aluminum oxides from the burned propellant resealed the joint and created a temporary barrier against further hot gas and flame escaping through the field joint. The Space Shuttle main engines SSMEs, were throttled down as scheduled for maximum dynamic pressure Max-Q. During its ascent, the Space Shuttle encountered wind shear conditions beginning at T plus 37, but they were within design limits of the vehicle and were countered by the guidance system. Plume At T plus 58.788, a tracking film camera captured the beginnings of a plume near the aft attached strut on the right SRB, right before the vehicle passed through Max-Q at T plus 59.000. The high aerodynamic forces and wind shear likely broke the aluminum oxide seal that had replaced eroded O-rings, allowing the flame to burn through the joint. Within a second from when it was first recorded, the plume became well-defined, and the enlarging hole caused a drop in internal pressure in the right SRB. A leak had begun in the liquid hydrogen, LH2, Tank of the ET at T plus 64.660, as indicated by the changing shape of the plume. The SSMEs pivoted to compensate for the booster burn through, which was creating an unexpected thrust on the vehicle. 
The pressure in the external LH2 tank began to drop at T plus 66.764 indicating that the flame had burned from the SRB into the tank. The crew and flight controllers made no indication they were aware of the vehicle and flight anomalies. At T plus 68, the Capcom Richard O. Covey told the crew that the SSMEs could throttle up to 104% thrust. In response to Covey, Scobby said, Roger, go at throttle up. This was the last communication from Challenger on the air-to-ground loop. Vehicle breakup. At T plus 72.284, the right SRB pulled away from the aft strut that attached it to the ET, causing lateral acceleration that was felt by the crew. At the same time, pressure in the LH2 tank began dropping, accompanied by a large fireball on the side of the ET. Pilot Mike Smith said oh, which was the last speech recorded of the crew. At T plus 73, 124, an explosion occurred at the aft dome of the LH2 tank, which pushed the LH2 tank forward into the liquid oxygen, LOX, tank, while the right SRB collided with the inner tank structure. The resulting explosion engulfed the ET and orbiter. The orbiter, at an altitude of 46,000 feet, 14 kilometers, was broken into several large pieces from high aerodynamic forces as it traveled at Mach 1.92. The two SRBs separated from the ET and continued an uncontrolled powered flight until the range safety officer, RSO, on the ground initiated their self-destruct charges at T plus 110. Post-breakup flight controller dialogue. At T plus 73.191, there was a burst of static on the air-to-ground loop as the vehicle broke up, which was later attributed to ground-based radio searching for a signal from the destroyed spacecraft. NASA Public Affairs Officer Steve Nesbitt was initially unaware of the explosion and continued to read out flight information. At T plus 89, after video of the explosion was seen in mission control, the ground control officer reported negative contact and loss of downlink as they were no longer receiving transmissions from Challenger. Nesbitt stated, flight controllers here are looking very carefully at the situation. Obviously a major malfunction. We have no downlink. Soon afterwards, he said, we have a report from the flight dynamics officer that the vehicle has exploded. The flight director confirms that. We are looking at checking with the recovery forces to see what can be done at this point. In mission control, flight director Jay Green ordered that contingency procedures be put into effect, which included locking the doors, shutting down telephone communications, and freezing computer terminals to collect data from them. Cause and time of death. The crew cabin was made of reinforced aluminum and separated in one piece from the rest of the orbiter. It then traveled in a ballistic arc, reaching the highest point, apogee, of 65,000 feet, 20 kilometers, approximately 25 seconds after the explosion. At the time of separation, the maximum acceleration is estimated to have been between 12 and 20 times that of gravity, g, within 2 seconds it had dropped below 4 grams, and within 10 seconds the cabin was in free fall. The forces involved at this stage were probably insufficient to cause major injury to the crew. At least some of the crew were alive and at least briefly conscious after the breakup, as the personal egress air packs, peeps, were activated for Smith and two unidentified crew members, but not for Scobby. The peeps were not intended for in-flight use, and the astronauts never trained with them for an in-flight emergency. The location of Smith's activation switch, on the back side of his seat, indicated that either Resnick or Onizuka likely activated it for him. Investigators found their remaining unused air supply consistent with the expected consumption during the post-breakup trajectory. While analyzing the wreckage, investigators discovered that several electrical system switches on Smith's right-hand panel had been moved from their usual launch positions. 
The switches had lever locks on top of them that were required to be pulled out before the switch could be moved. Later tests established that neither the force of the explosion nor the impact with the ocean could have moved them, indicating that Smith made the switch changes, presumably in a futile attempt to restore electrical power to the cockpit after the crew cabin detached from the rest of the orbiter. On July 28, 1986, NASA's Associate Administrator for Space Flight, former astronaut Richard H. Truly, released a report on the deaths of the crew from Physician and Skylab 2 astronaut Joseph P. Kerwin. Kerwin's report could not determine whether the crew remained conscious until ocean impact, because it is unknown whether the crew cabin remained pressurized. Depressurization would have caused the crew to quickly lose consciousness, as the peeps supplied only unpressurized air. Pressurization could have enabled consciousness for the entire fall until impact. The crew cabin hit the ocean surface at 207 miles per hour, 333 kilometers per hour, approximately 2 minutes and 45 seconds after breakup. The estimated deceleration was 200 grams, far exceeding structural limits of the crew compartment or crew survivability levels. The mid-deck floor had not suffered buckling or tearing, as would result from a rapid decompression, but stowed equipment showed damage consistent with decompression, and debris was embedded between the two forward windows that may have caused a loss of pressure. Impact damage to the crew cabin was severe enough that it could not be determined if the crew cabin had been previously damaged enough to lose pressurization. Prospect of crew escape Unlike other crewed spacecraft, crew escape was not possible during powered flight of the space shuttle. Launch escape systems had been considered during the space shuttle's development, but NASA's conclusion was that the space shuttle's expected high reliability would preclude the need for one. Modified SR-71 Blackbird ejection seats and full-pressure suits were used for the two-person crews on the first four space shuttle orbital test flights, which were disabled and later removed for the operational flights. Escape options for the operational flights were considered, but were not implemented due to their complexity, high cost, and heavy weight. After the disaster, a system was implemented to allow the crew egress and gliding flight, but this system would not have been usable to escape an explosion during ascent. Recovery of Debris and Crew Immediately after the disaster, the NASA Launch Recovery Director launched the two SRB recovery ships, MV Freedom Star and MV Liberty Star, to proceed to the impact area to recover debris, and requested the support of U.S. military aircraft and ships. Owing to falling debris from the explosion, the RSO kept recovery forces from the impact area until 12.37 p.m. The size of the recovery operations increased through to 12 aircraft and 8 ships by 7 p.m. Surface operations covered debris from the orbiter and ET. The surface recovery operations ended on February 7. On January 31, the U.S. Navy was tasked with submarine recovery operations. The search efforts prioritized the recovery of the right SRB, followed by the crew compartment, and then the remaining payload, orbiter pieces, and ET. The search for debris formally began on February 8 with the rescue and salvage ship USS Preserver, and eventually grew to 16 ships, of which three were managed by NASA, four by the US Navy, one by the US Air Force and eight by independent contractors. The surface ships used side-scan sonar to make the initial search for debris and covered 486 square nautical miles, 1,670 square kilometers, at water depths between 70 feet, 21 meters, and 1,200 feet, 370 meters. The sonar operations discovered 881 potential locations for debris, of which 187 pieces were later confirmed to be from the space shuttle. The debris from the SRBs was widely distributed due to the detonation of their linear-shaped charges. 
The identification of SRB material was primarily conducted by crewed submarines and submersibles. The vehicles were dispatched to investigate potential debris located during the search phase. Surface ships lifted the SRB debris with the help of technical divers and underwater remotely operated vehicles to attach the necessary slings to raise the debris with cranes. The solid propellant in the SRBs posed a risk, as it became more volatile after being submerged. Recovered portions of the SRBs were kept wet during recovery, and their unused propellant was ignited once they were brought ashore. The failed joint on the right SRB was first located on sonar on March 1st. Subsequent dives to 560 feet, 170 meters, by the NR-1 submarine on April 5th and the Sea Link I submersible on April 12th confirmed that it was the damaged field joint, and it was successfully recovered on April 13th. Of the 196,726 pounds, 89,233 kilograms, of both SRB shells, 102,500 pounds, 46,500 kilograms, was recovered, another 54,000 pounds, 24,000 kilograms, was found but not recovered, and 40,226 pounds, 18,246 kilograms, was never found. On March 7th, Air Force divers identified potential crew compartment debris, which was confirmed the next day by divers from the USS Preserver. The damage to the crew compartment indicated that it had remained largely intact during the initial explosion but was extensively damaged when it impacted the ocean. The remains of the crew were badly damaged from impact and submersion, and were not intact bodies. The USS Preserver made multiple trips to return debris and remains to port, and continued crew compartment recovery until April 4th. During the recovery of the remains of the crew, Jarvis's body floated away and was not located until April 15th, several weeks after the other remains had been positively identified. Once remains were brought to port, pathologists from the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology worked to identify the human remains, but could not determine the exact cause of death for any of them. Medical examiners in Brevard County disputed the legality of transferring human remains to U.S. military officials to conduct autopsies and refused to issue the death certificates. NASA officials ultimately released the death certificates of the crew members. The use that would have been used to boost the orbit of the TDRSB satellite was one of the first pieces of debris recovered. There was no indication that there had been premature ignition of the use, which had been one of the suspected causes for the disaster. Debris from the three SSMEs was recovered from February 14 to 28, and post-recovery analysis produced results consistent with functional engines suddenly losing their LH2 fuel supply. Deepwater recovery operations continued until April 29, with smaller-scale, shallow recovery operations continuing until August 29. On December 17, 1996, two pieces of the orbiter were found at Cocoa Beach. All recovered non-organic debris from Challenger was buried in Cape Canaveral Air Force Station missile silos at LC-31 and LC-32. Public Response White House Response President Ronald Reagan had been scheduled to give the 1986 State of the Union address on January 28, 1986, the evening of the Challenger disaster. After a discussion with his aides, Reagan postponed the State of the Union, and instead addressed the nation about the disaster from the Oval Office. On January 31, Ronald and Nancy Reagan traveled to the Johnson Space Center to speak at a memorial service honoring the crew members. During the ceremony, an Air Force band sang God Bless America as NASA T-38 talent jets flew directly over the scene in the traditional missing man formation. Soon after the disaster, U.S. politicians expressed concern that White House officials, including Chief of Staff Donald Reagan and Communications Director Pat Buchanan, 
had pressured NASA to launch Challenger before the scheduled January 28 State of the Union address, because Reagan had planned to mention the launch in his remarks. In March 1986, the White House released a copy of the original State of the Union speech. In that speech, Reagan had intended to mention an X-ray experiment launched on Challenger and designed by a guest he had invited to the address, but he did not further discuss the Challenger launch. In the rescheduled State of the Union address on February 4, Reagan mentioned the deceased Challenger crew members and modified his remarks about the X-ray experiment as launched and lost. In April 1986, the White House released a report that concluded there had been no pressure from the White House for NASA to launch Challenger prior to the State of the Union. Media Coverage Nationally televised coverage of the launch and explosion was provided by CNN. To promote the Teacher in Space program with McAuliffe as a crew member, NASA had arranged for many U.S. children to view the launch live at school. Press interest in the disaster increased in following days, the number of reporters at Kaisei increased from 535 on the day of the launch to 1,467 reporters three days later. In the aftermath of the accident, NASA was criticized for not making key personnel available to the press. In the absence of information, the press published articles suggesting the external tank was the cause of the explosion. Until 2010, CNN's live broadcast of the launch and disaster was the only known on-location video footage from within range of the launch site. Additional amateur and professional recordings have since become publicly available. Engineering Case Study The Challenger accident has been used as a case study for subjects such as engineering safety, the ethics of whistleblowing, communications and group decision-making, and the dangers of groupthink. Roger Boisterly and Alan McDonald became speakers who advocated for responsible workplace decision-making and engineering ethics. Information designer Edward Tuft has argued that the Challenger accident was the result of poor communications and overly complicated explanations on the part of engineers, and stated that showing the correlation of ambient air temperature and wearing erosion amounts would have been sufficient to communicate the potential dangers of the cold-weather launch. Boisterly contested this assertion and stated that the data presented by Tuft were not as simple or available as Tuft stated. Rogers Commission The Presidential Commission on the Space Shuttle Challenger Accident, also known as the Rogers Commission after its chairman, was formed on February 6. Its members were Chairman William P. Rogers, Vice Chairman Neil Armstrong, David Acheson, Eugene Covert, Richard Feynman, Robert Hotz, Donald Kutina, Sally Ride, Robert Rummel, Joseph Sutter, Arthur Walker, Albert Whelan, and Chuck Yeager. The Commission held hearings that discussed the NASA accident investigation, the Space Shuttle program, and the Morton Thiokol recommendation to launch despite oaring safety issues. On February 15th, Rogers released a statement that established the Commission's changing role to investigate the accident independent of NASA due to concerns of the failures of the internal processes at NASA. The Commission created four investigative panels to research the different aspects of the Space Shuttle mission. The Accident Analysis Panel, chaired by Ku Tina, used data from salvage operations and testing to determine the exact cause behind the accident. The Development and Production Panel, chaired by Sutter, investigated the contractors responsible for space shuttle components and how the contractors interacted with NASA. The pre-launch activities panel, chaired by Acheson, focused on the final assembly processes and pre-launch activities conducted at Kaisei. The mission planning and operations panel, chaired by Ride, investigated the planning that went into mission development, along with potential concerns over crew safety and pressure to adhere to a schedule. Over a period of four months, the Commission interviewed over 160 individuals, held at least 35 investigative sessions, 
and involved more than 6,000 NASA employees, contractors, and support personnel. The Commission's published its report on June 6, 1986. The Commission determined that the cause of the accident was hot gas blowing past the O-rings in the field joint on the right SRB, and found no other potential causes for the disaster. It attributed the accident to a faulty design of the field joint that was unacceptably sensitive to changes in temperature, dynamic loading, and the character of its materials. The report was critical of NASA and Morton Thiokol, and emphasized that both organizations had overlooked evidence that indicated the potential danger with the SRB field joints. It noted that NASA accepted the risk of oaring erosion without evaluating how it could potentially affect the safety of a mission. The Commission concluded that the safety culture and management structure at NASA was insufficient to properly report, analyze, and prevent flight issues. It stated that the pressure to increase the rate of flights negatively impacted the amount of training, quality control, and repair work that was available for each mission. The Commission published a series of recommendations to improve the safety of the Space Shuttle program. It proposed a redesign of the joints in the SRB that would prevent gas from blowing past the O-rings. It also recommended that the Space Shuttle program's management should be restructured to keep project managers from being pressured to adhere to unsafe deadlines by the Space Shuttle organization, and should include astronauts to better address crew safety concerns. It proposed that an Office for Safety be established reporting directly to the NASA Administrator to oversee all safety, reliability, and quality assurance functions in NASA programs. Additionally, the Commission addressed issues with overall safety and maintenance for the orbiter, and it recommended the addition of the means for the crew to escape during controlled gliding flight. During a televised hearing on February 11th, Feynman demonstrated the loss of rubber's elasticity in cold temperatures using a glass of cold water and a piece of rubber for which he received media attention. Feynman, a Nobel Prize-winning physicist, advocated for harsher criticism towards NASA in the report and repeatedly disagreed with Rogers. He threatened to remove his name from the report unless it included his personal observations on the reliability of the space shuttle, which appeared as Appendix F. In the appendix, he lauded the engineering and software accomplishments in the space shuttle's development, but he argued that multiple components, including the avionics and SSMEs in addition to the SRBs, were more dangerous and accident-prone than original NASA estimates had indicated. U.S. House Committee Report the U.S. House Committee on Science and Technology conducted an investigation of the Challenger disaster and released a report on October 29, 1986.The committee, which had authorized the funding for the Space Shuttle, reviewed the findings of the Rogers Commission as part of its investigation. The committee agreed with the Rogers Commission that the failed SRB field joint was the cause of the accident, and that NASA and Morton Thiokol failed to act despite numerous warnings of the potential dangers of the SRB. The committee's report further emphasized safety considerations of other space shuttle components and recommended a risk management review for all critical systems. NASA Response SRB Redesign In response to the Commission's recommendation, NASA initiated a redesign of the SRB, later named the Redesigned Solid Rocket Motor, RSRM, which was supervised by an independent oversight group. The redesign joint included a capture feature on the tang around the interior wall of the clevis to prevent joint rotation. The space between the capture feature and the clevis was sealed with another O-ring. The capture feature reduced the potential of joint rotation to 15% of that which had occurred during the disaster. Should joint rotation occur, any rotation that reduced the O-ring seal on one side of the clevis wall would increase it on the other side. Additionally, heaters were installed to maintain consistent, higher temperatures of the O-rings. The RSRM was first tested on August 30, 1987. 
In April and August 1988, the RSRM was tested with intentional flaws that allowed hot gas to penetrate the field joint, which allowed the engineers to evaluate whether the improved field joint prevented joint rotation. Following the successful tests, the RSRM was certified to fly on the Space Shuttle. Space Shuttle Modifications In addition to the SRBs, NASA increased the safety standards on other components of the Space Shuttle. The critical items lists and failure modes for the SSMEs were updated, along with 18 hardware changes. The maximum thrust of the SSMEs was limited to 104%, with 109% only allowed in an abort scenario. The landing gear was updated to improve its steering and handling abilities while the space shuttle was landing. NASA implemented an escape option in which the astronauts would jettison the side hatch and extend a pole out of the orbiter. They would slide down the pole to avoid hitting the orbiter as bailed out before they activated their parachutes. The orbiter software was modified to maintain stable flight while all of the flight crew left the controls to escape. This escape method would not have saved the crew in the Challenger disaster, but was added in the event of another space shuttle emergency. Safety Office NASA also created a new Office of Safety, Reliability, and Quality Assurance, headed as the commission had specified by a NASA Associate Administrator who reported directly to the NASA Administrator. Former Challenger Flight Director Green became Chief of the Safety Division of the Directorate. After the Space Shuttle Columbia disaster in 2003, the Columbia Accident Investigation Board CAIB, concluded that NASA had not effectively set up an independent office for safety oversight. The COB concluded that the ineffective safety culture that had resulted in the Challenger accident was also responsible for the subsequent disaster. Teacher in Space The Teacher in Space program, which McAuliffe had been selected for, was cancelled in 1990 as a result of the Challenger disaster. In 1998, NASA replaced Teacher in Space with the Educator Astronaut Project, which differed in that it required the teachers to become professional astronauts trained as mission specialists, rather than short-term payload specialists who would return to their classrooms following their spaceflight. Barbara Morgan, who had been the backup teacher for McAuliffe, was selected to be part of NASA Astronaut Group 17 and flew on STS-118. Space Shuttle Return to Flight the projected Space Shuttle launch schedule of 24 launches per year was criticized by the Rogers Commission as an unrealistic goal that created unnecessary pressure on NASA to launch missions. In August 1986, President Reagan approved the construction of an orbiter, which would later be named Endeavour, to replace Challenger. Construction of Endeavour began in 1987 and was completed in 1990, and at first flew on STS-49 in May 1992. He also announced that the Space Shuttle would no longer carry commercial satellite payloads, and that these would be launched using commercial expendable launch vehicles. These commercial payloads were reallocated from the Space Shuttle to end the dependence on a single launch vehicle and limit the pressure on NASA to launch crewed missions to satisfy its customers. The Space Shuttle fleet was grounded for two years and eight months while the program underwent investigation, redesign, and restructuring. On September 29, 1988, Discovery launched on STS-26 mission from LC-39B with a crew of five veteran astronauts. Its payload was TDRS-3, which was a substitute for the satellite lost with Challenger. The launch tested the redesigned boosters, and the crew wore pressure suits during the ascent and re-entry. The mission was a success, and the space shuttle program resumed flying. Legacy. In 2004, President George W. Bush conferred posthumous Congressional Space Medals of Honor to all 14 crew members killed in the Challenger and Columbia accidents. 
An unpainted decorative oval in the Bermidi corridors of the United States Capitol was finished with a portrait depicting the crew by Charles Schmidt in 1987. The scene was painted on canvas and then applied to the wall. The forever-remembered exhibit at the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex opened in July 2015 and includes a display of a 12 feet, 3.7 meters, section of Challenger's recovered fuselage. The exhibit was opened by NASA Administrator Charles Bolden along with family members of the crew. A tree for each astronaut was planted in NASA's Astronaut Memorial Grove at the Johnson Space Center, along with trees for each astronaut from the Apollo 1 and Columbia disasters. Seven asteroids were named after the crew members, 3350 Scobie, 3351 Smith, 3352 McAuliffe, 3353 Jarvis, 3354 McNair, 3355 Onizuka, and 3356 Resnick. The approved naming citation was published by the Minor Planet Center on March 26, 1986, M. P. C. 10550. In 1988, seven craters on the far side of the Moon, within the Apollo Basin, were named after the astronauts by the YAL. The Soviet Union named two craters on Venus after McAuliffe and Resnick. Several memorials have been established in honor of the Challenger disaster. The public Pierce Park in Palo Alto, California features a Challenger Memorial Grove that includes redwood trees grown from seeds carried aboard Challenger in 1985. Schools and streets have been renamed to include the names of the crew or Challenger. In 1990, a one-tenth scale replica of Space Shuttle Challenger in liftoff position was erected in Little Tokyo District of Los Angeles, California. Challenger Point, a peak of the Sangre de Cristo range, commemorates the Challenger mission. The McAuliffe Shepard Discovery Center, a science museum and planetarium in Concord, New Hampshire, is named in honor of McAuliffe, a Concord High School teacher, and Alan Shepard, who was from Derry, New Hampshire. The families of the Challenger crew established the Challenger Center for Space Science Education as educational nonprofit organization. An American flag, later named the Challenger flag, was carried aboard the Challenger. It was sponsored by Boy Scout Troop 514 of Monument, Colorado, and was recovered intact, still sealed in its plastic container. Onizuka had included a soccer ball with his personal effects that was recovered and later flown to the International Space Station aboard Soyuz Expedition 49 by American astronaut Shane Kimbrough. It is on display at Clear Lake High School in Houston, which was attended by Onizuka's children. Media. Books. In the years immediately after the Challenger disaster, several books were published describing the factors and causes of the accidents and the subsequent investigation and changes. In 1987, Malcolm McConnell, a journalist who had been viewing the launch during the disaster, published Challenger A Major Malfunction, a true story of politics, greed, and the wrong stuff. McConnell's book was criticized for arguing for a conspiracy involving NASA Administrator Fletcher awarding the contract to Morton Thiokol because it was from Utah, his home state. The book Prescription for Disaster, From the Glory of Apollo to the Betrayal of the Shuttle by Joseph Trento was also published in 1987. Trento's book argues that the Space Shuttle program had been a flawed and politicized program from its inception. In 1988, Feynman's memoir, What Do You Care What Other People Think? Further Adventures of a Curious Character, was published. The latter half of the book discusses his involvement in the Rogers Commission and his relationship with Kutina. Additional books were published years after the disaster. In 1996, Diane Vaughn published The Challenger Launch Decision, Risky Technology, Culture, and Deviance at NASA, which argued that NASA's structure and mission, rather than just space shuttle program management, created a climate of risk acceptance that resulted in the disaster. 
Also in 1996, Klaus Jensen published No Downlink, a dramatic narrative about the Challenger accident and our time that primarily discussed the development of rocketry prior to the disaster, and was criticized for its reliance on secondary sources with little original research conducted for the book. In 2009, Alan MacDonald published his memoir written with space historian James Hansen, Truth, Lies, and O-Rings, Inside the Space Shuttle Challenger Disaster, which focused on his personal involvement in the launch, disaster, investigation, and return to flight, and was critical of NASA and Morton Thiokol leadership for agreeing to launch Challenger despite warnings from engineers concerned with the O-Rings. Film and Television An ABC television movie titled Challenger was broadcast on February 25, 1990. It starred Barry Bostwick as Scobby and Karen Allen as McAuliffe. The movie was critical of NASA and positively portrayed the engineers who argued against launching. The movie was criticized by the widows of Smith, McNair, and Onizuka as an inaccurate portrayal of events. A BBC docudrama titled The Challenger Disaster was broadcast on March 18, 2013. It starred William Hurt as Feynman and portrayed the investigation into the causes of the disaster. A film directed by Nathan Von Minden, The Challenger Disaster, was released on January 25, 2019, it depicted fictional characters participating in the decision process to launch. The first episode of History Channel's documentary titled Days That Shaped America is about Challenger. The four-part docuseries Challenger, The Final Flight, created by Stephen Leckert and Glenn Zipper, was released by Netflix on September 16, 2020. The docuseries used interviews with NASA and Morton Thiokol personnel involved in the decision to launch, and argues against the flawed decision-making process that resulted in a preventable disaster.